The investor and inflation. Inflation and the fight against it has been very much in the public's mind in recent years. The shrinkage in the purchasing power of the dollar in the past and particularly the fear or hope by spectaculars, speculators of a serious further decline in the future has greatly influenced the thinking of Wall Street. It is clear that those with a fixed dollar income will suffer when the cost of living advances and the same applies to a fixed amount of dollar principal. Holders of stocks, on the other hand, have the possibility that a loss of the dollar's purchasing power may be offset by advances in their dividends and the prices of their shares. On the basis of these undeniable facts, many financial authorities have concluded that bonds are an inherently undesirable form of investment and consequently common stocks are by their very nature more desirable investments than bonds. We have heard of charitable institutions being advised that their portfolios should consist 100% of stocks and 0% of bonds. This is quite a reversal from the earlier days when trust investments were restricted by law to high-grade bonds and a few choice preferred stocks. Our readers must have enough intelligence to recognize that even high-quality stocks cannot be a better purchase than bonds under all conditions. That is, regardless of how high the stock market may be and how low the current dividend return compared with the rates available in bonds, a statement of this kind would be as absurd as was the contrary one. Too often heard years ago that any bond is safer than any stock. So, we shall try to apply various measurements to the inflation factor in order to reach some conclusions as to the extent to which the investor may wisely be influenced by expectations regarding future rises in the price level. In this matter, as in so many others in finance, we must base our views of future policy on a knowledge of past experience. Is inflation something new for this country, at least in the serious form? It has taken since 1965. If we have seen comparable or worse inflations in a living experience, what lessons can be learned from them in confronting the inflation of today? <clears throat> a condensed historical tabulation that con- contains much information about changes in the general price level and commit and committant changes in the earnings and market value of common stocks. Our figures will begin with 1915 and thus cover 55 years presented at 5 intervals. The first thing we notice is that we have had inflation in the past lots of it. The largest 5 year dose was between 1915 and 1920 when the cost of living nearly doubled. This compares with the advance of 15% between 1965 and 1970. In between we have had 3 periods of declining prices and then 6 of advances at should should at varying rates some rather small on this showing the investor should clearly allow for the probability of continuing or recurrent inflation to come can we tell what the rate of inflation is likely to be no clear answer is suggested by our table it shows variations of all sorts it would seem sensible however to take our cue from the rather consistent record of the past 20 years the average annual rise in the consumer price level for this period has been 2.5% that for 1965 to 1970 was 4.5% that for 1970 alone was 5.4% 
Official government policy has been strongly against large-scale inflation and there are some reasons to believe that federal policies will be more effective in the future than in recent years. We think it would be reasonable for an investor at this point to base his thinking and decision on a probable, far from certain rate of future inflation of say 3% per annum. What would be the implications of such an of such an advance, it would eat up in higher living cost about one half of the income now obtainable on good medium term tax free bonds or are assumed after tax equivalent from high grade corporate bonds. This would be a serious shrinkage, but it should not be exaggerated. It would not mean that the true value or the purchasing power of the investor's fortune need to be reduced over the years. If he spent half his interest income after taxes, he would maintain this buying power intact even against a 3% annual inflation. But the next question naturally is, can the investor be reasonably sure of doing better by buying and holding other things than high-grade bonds, even at the unprecedented rate of return offered in 1970-1971? Would not, for example, an all-stock program be preferable to be a part-bond, part-stock program? Do not common stocks have a built-in protection against inflation, and are they not almost certain to give a better return over the years than will bonds. Have not in fact stocks treated the investor far better than have bonds over the 55 year period of our study? The answer to these questions is somewhat complicated. Common stocks have indeed done better than bonds over a long period of time in the past. The rise of the DJIA from an average of 77 in 1915 to an average of 753 in 1970 works out an annual compounded rate of just about 4% to which we may add another 4% for average dividend return. This combined figures of 8% per year are of course much better than return enjoyed from bonds over the same 55 year period but they do not exceed that now offered by high grade bonds this brings us to the next logical question is there a persuasive reason to believe that common stocks are likely to do much better in future years than they have in the last five and one half decades our answer to this crucial question must be a flat no Common stocks may do better in the future than in the past, but they are for certain to do so. We must deal with the two different time elements in investment results. The first covers what is likely to occur over the long-term future, say the next 25 years. The second applies to what is likely to happen to the investors both financially and psychologically over short or immediate period, intermediate periods, say 5 years or less. His frame of mind, his hopes and apprehensions, his satisfaction or discontent with what he has done above all his decisions, what to do next are all determined not in the retrospect of a lifetime of investment but rather by his experience from year to year. On this point, we can be categorical. There is no close time connection between inflationary or deflationary conditions and the movement of common stock earnings and prices. The obvious example is the recent periods 1966 to 1970, the rise of the cost of living was 22%, the largest in a five-year period since 1946-1950, but both stock earnings and stock prices as a whole have declined since 1965. There are similar contradictions in both directions in the record of previous five-year periods. Inflation and corporate earnings. Another and highly important approach to the, to the subject is by a study of the earnings 
rate on capital shown by American business. This has fluctuated, of course, with the general rate of economic activity, but it has shown no general tendency to advance with wholesale prices or the cost of living. Actually, this rate has fallen rather markedly in the past 20 years in spite of the inflation of this period. To some degree, the decline was due to the charging of the more liberal de de depreciation rates. Our extended studies have led to the conclusion that the investor cannot count on much above the recent five years rate earned on the DJIA group, about 10% on net tangible assets, book value behind the shares, since the market value of these issues is well above their book value, say 900 market versus 560 book in mid-1971, the earnings on current market price work out only at some 6 six one by four percent this relation ship is generally expressed in the reverse or times earnings manner example the DJIA price of 900 equals 18 times the actual earnings for the 12 months ended June 1971 our figures gear directly with the suggestion in the previous chapter that the investor may assume an average dividend return of about 3.5 percent on the market value of his stocks plus an appreciation of say four percent annually resulting from reinvents from reinvested profits the reader will object that in the mind our calculations make no allowance for an increase in common stock earnings and values to result from our projected 3% annual inflation our justification is the absence of any sign that the inflation of a comparable amount in the past has had any direct effect on reported per share earnings the cold figures demonstrate that all the large gain in the earnings of the DJIA unit in the past 20 years was due to a proportionately large growth of invested capital coming from reinvested profits. If inflation had operated as a separate favorable factor, its effect would have been to increase the value of previously existing capital. This, is, this in turn should increase the rate of earnings on such old capital and therefore on the old and new capital combined. But nothing of the kind actually happened in the past 20 years, during which the wholesale price level has advanced nearly 40%. Business earnings should be influenced more by wholesale prices than by consumer prices. The only way that inflation can add to common stock values is by raising the rate of earnings on capital investment. On the basis of the past record, this has not been the, been the case. If the, in the economic cycles of the past, good business was accompanied by a rising price level and poor business by falling prices, it was generally felt that a little inflation was helpful to business profits. This view is not contradicted by the history of 1950-1970 which reveals a combination of generally continued prosperity and generally rising prices, but the figures indicate that the effect of all this on the earnings power of common stock capital has been quite limited if, in fact, it has not even served to maintain the rate of earnings on the investment. Clearly, there have been important offsetting influences which have prevented any increase in the real profitability of American corporations as a whole. Perhaps the most important of these have been, one, a rise in wage rates exceeding the gains and productivity and second the need for huge amounts of new capital thus holding down the ratio of sales to capital employed the investor and inflation inflation and the fight against it has been very much in the public's mind in recent years the shrinkage in the purchasing power of the dollar in the past and particularly the fear or hope by spectaculars speculators of a serious Further decline in the future has greatly influenced the thinking of Wall Street. 
It is clear that those with a fixed dollar income will suffer when the cost of living advances and the same applies to a fixed amount of dollar principal. Holders of stocks, on the other hand, have the possibility that a loss of the dollar's purchasing power may be offset by advances in their dividends and the prices of their shares. On the basis of these undeniable facts, many financial authorities have concluded that bonds are an inherently undesirable form of investment and consequently common stocks are by their very nature more desirable investments than bonds. We have heard of charitable institutions being advised that their portfolios should consist 100% of stocks and 0% of bonds. This is quite a reversal from the earlier days when trust investments were restricted by law to high-grade bonds and a few choice preferred stocks. Our readers must have enough intelligence to recognize that even high-quality stocks cannot be a better purchase than bonds under all conditions. That is, regardless of how high the stock market may be and how low the current dividend return compared with the rates available in bonds, a statement of this kind would be as absurd as was the contrary one. Too often heard years ago that any bond is safer than any stock. So, we shall try to apply various measurements to the inflation factor in order to reach some conclusions as to the extent to which the investor may wisely be influenced by expectations regarding future rises in the price level. In this matter, as in so many others in finance, we must base our views of future policy on a knowledge of past experience. Is inflation something new for this country, at least in the serious form it has taken since 1965? If we have seen comparable or worse inflations in a living experience, what lessons can be learned from them in confronting the inflation of today? <clears throat> A condensed historical tabulation that contains much information about changes in the general price level and commit and committant changes in the earnings and market value of common stocks. Our figures will begin with 1915 and thus cover 55 years presented at 5 intervals. The first thing we notice is that we have had inflation in the past lots of it. The largest five-year dose was between 1915 and 1920, when the cost of living nearly doubled. This compares with the advance of 15% between 1965 and 1970. In between, we have had three periods of declining prices and then six of advances. At should, should, at varying rates, some rather small. On this showing, the investor should clearly allow for the probability of continuing or recurrent inflation to come. Can we tell what the rate of inflation is likely to be? No clear answer is suggested by our table. It shows variations of all sorts. It would seem sensible, however, to take our cue from the rather consistent record of the past 20 years. The average annual rise in the consumer price level for this period has been 2.5% that for 1965 to 1970 was 4.5% that for 1970 alone was 5.4%. Official government policy has been strongly against large-scale inflation and there are some reasons to believe that federal policies will be more effective in the future than in recent years. We think it would be reasonable for an investor at this point to base his thinking and decision on a probable, far from certain rate of future inflation of say 3% per annum. 
what would be the implications of such an of such an advance it would eat up in higher living cost about one half of the income now obtainable on good medium term tax free bonds or are assumed after tax equivalent from high grade corporate bonds this would be a serious shrinkage but it should not be exaggerated it would not mean that the true value or the purchasing power of the investor's fortune need to be reduced over the years if he spent half his interest income after taxes he would maintain this buying power intact even against a 3% annual inflation but the next question naturally is can the investor be reasonably sure of doing better by buying and holding other things than high grade bonds even at the unprecedented rate of return offered in 1970-1971 would not for example an all stock program be preferable to be a part bond part stock mob program do not common stocks have a built in protection against inflation and are they not almost certain to give a better return over the years than will bonds have not in fact stocks treated the investor far better than have bonds over the 55 year period of our study the answer to these questions is somewhat complicated common stocks have indeed done better than bonds over a long period of time in the past the rise of the djia from an average of 77 in 1915 to an average of 753 in 1970 works out an annual compounded rate of just about 4% to which we may add another 4% for average dividend return this combined figures of 8% per year are of course much better than return enjoyed from bonds over the same 55 year period but they do not exceed that now offered by high grade bonds this brings us to the next logical question is there a persuasive reason to believe that common stocks are likely to do much better in future years than they have in the last 5 and 1 half decades our answer to this crucial question must be a flat no common stocks may do better in the future than in the past but they are for certain to do so we must deal with the two different time elements in investment results the first covers what is likely to occur over the long term future say the next 25 years the second applies to what is likely to happen to the investors both financially and psychologically over shorter immediate period intermediate period say 5 years or less his frame of mind his hopes and apprehensions his satisfaction or discontent with what he has done above all his decisions what to do next are all determined not in the retrospect of a lifetime of investment but rather by his experience from year to year on this point we can be categorical there is no close time connection between inflationary or deflationary conditions and the movement of common stock earnings and prices the obvious example is the recent periods 1966 to 1970 the rise of the cost of living was 22% the largest in a 5 year period since 1946 1950 but both stock earnings and stock prices as a whole have declined since 1965 there are similar contradictions in both directions in the record of previous 5 year periods inflation and corporate earnings another and highly important approach to the, to the subject is by a study of the earnings rate on capital shown by american business this has fluctuated of course with the general rate of economic activity but it has shown no general tendency to advance with wholesale prices or the cost of living actually this rate has fallen rather markedly in the past 20 years in spite of the inflation of this period to some degree the decline was 
due to the charging of the more liberal de de depreciation rates. Our extended studies have led to the conclusion that the investor cannot count on much above the recent five years rate earned on the DJIA group, about 10% on net tangible assets book value behind the shares since the market value of these issues is well above their book value say 900 market versus 560 book in mid-1971 the earnings on current market price work out only at some six six one by four percent this relationship is generally expressed in the reverse or times earnings manner example the dji a price of 900 equals 18 times the actual earnings for the 12 months ended june 1971 our figures gear directly with the suggestion in the previous chapter that the investor may assume an average dividend return of about 3.5 percent on the market value of his stocks plus an appreciation of say four percent annually resulting from reinvents from reinvested profits the reader will object that in the mind our calculations make no allowance for an increase in common stock earnings and values to result from our projected three percent annual inflation our justification is the absence of any sign that the inflation of a comparable amount in the past has had any direct effect on reported per share earnings the cold figures demonstrate that all the large gain in the earnings of the DJIA unit in the past 20 years was due to a proportionately large growth of invested capital coming from reinvested profits. If inflation had operated as a separate favorable factor, its effect would have been to increase the value of previously existing capital. This, is, this in turn should increase the rate of earnings on such old capital and therefore on the old and new capital combined. But nothing of the kind actually happened in the past 20 years, during which the wholesale price level has advanced nearly 40%. Business earnings should be influenced more by wholesale prices than by consumer prices. The only way that inflation can add to common stock values is by raising the rate of earnings on capital investment. On the basis of the past record, this has not been the, been the case. If the, in the economic cycles of the past, good business was accompanied by a rising price level and poor business by falling prices. It was generally felt that a little inflation was helpful to business profits. This view is not contradicted by the history of 1950-1970, which reveals a combination of generally continued prosperity and generally rising prices, but the figures indicate that the effect of all this on the earnings power of common stock capital has been quite limited if in fact it has not even served to maintain the rate of earnings on the investment clearly there have been important offsetting influences which have prevented any increase in the real profitability of american corporations as a whole perhaps the most important of these have been one a rise in wage rates exceeding the gains and productivity and second the need for huge amounts of new capital thus holding down the ratio of sales to capital employed